So today is uh, the third week of Advent, the third week in our Advent series called A Time for Hope. Uh, we, have, we have been taking time to look into the Old Testament scriptures, uh, specifically at prophets like Isaiah, and today we're going to be looking at Jeremiah to see how God was providing the people of Israel, and, and now us, hope, to see that, that God is someone who, is, who cares for us and is in control. And, and so today, specifically, we're going to be looking at uh, Jeremiah 33. We're going to land there. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to Jeremiah 29. I'm going to read just a little bit of a segment from there. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, there's a Bible in the back. You're totally welcome to keep that. Otherwise, you can break it out on your phone or iPad or whatever you want. Um, if you remember from the past talks that we, we've been doing over the past couple weeks, you remember that the, the people of God, who are called the nation of Israel, had split apart into two different kingdoms after King Solomon. And there'd been this, this rift in between the two kingdoms, and they end up with Israel, the, the nation called Israel to the north, and they had their own capital city and place that they worshipped. And in the southern kingdom was Judah. And, and Judah had the capital city of Jerusalem. It had the center of religious and national life, the temple, this huge building where the people would come to offer sacrifices and to worship God. And Israel, the northern kingdom at this point, when we come to Jeremiah, had been carted off to Assyria because of their idolatry. And because they had made alliances with other country, God allowed them to fall into exile, and Assyria carts them away. And, and what we find out is that, that Judah, the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, is not too far behind, that this is going to come upon them as well. But what God would do is he would send people called prophets, like Jeremiah and Isaiah, to these nations of Isaiah, to Judah, to, to warn them about their idolatry, to tell them this is not the way that you want to go. You don't want to be making these alliances with other countries. Uh, you want to stay true to the covenant God. Don't go worshiping idols, these things that you've made by hand of metal and stone and wood. They're lifeless, they're powerless. Worship the covenant God that you have made a promise to all those years ago. And they were ultimately calling them to come back to the God who had led them out of slavery in Egypt, who had parted the Red Sea on their behalf, who had parted the Jordan River so they could go into the Promised Land, who had conquered nations on their behalf. And, they're saying, and these prophets were saying, stay true to him. He will defend you. He is for you. And so for a time, the people would repent, and then they would cycle back into their idolatry. And over and over again, this happens. And it's happening again in Judah. Israel gets carted off, and now it's happening in Judah that they're falling back into idolatry. And it's into that world that God calls this guy named Jeremiah to go and be a prophet, to go and preach to the people of Judah, to preach repentance, saying, turn and come back to God. There was a nation called Babylon who had been increasing in strength all over the region, and they were moving in and surrounding Judah. And they kept tightening their grip around the city of Jerusalem until they got closer and closer all around it, conquering the land all around them. And at the time that we start reading today, we'll find out that uh, Babylon had already started taking some of the people of Jerusalem, some of the people of Judah, the educated men, uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, if you know that song from when you were little or you've studied the book of Daniel, he takes these nobles away, uh, the king of Babylon takes them away to Babylon, he actually takes one of the kings of Judah away, and they're exiled already, but they just haven't been able to gain control of Jerusalem yet, of the capital city, but it was coming. Jeremiah uh, was a, a man from a family of priests, people who would be called on to, to help in the synagogue, called on to help in the temple. He was from a town or a city northeast of Jerusalem called Anathoth. 
and, and he lived you know, with his family there, this family of priests. And eventually what God does, though, he calls him to, to leave his hometown of Anathoth and go to Jerusalem directly, to go and declare the word of God there and to warn them that Babylon was coming. And in chapter 1 of uh, Jeremiah, you see that God tells Jeremiah that he's going to have this sort of this speaking authority to do a couple different things, to uproot and to tear down. To up, you, know, you can picture uprooting something, tearing something down, maybe a plant or something, to destroy and to overthrow, but also to build and to plant. So there's this destruction and there's this replanting that Jeremiah is going to have to speak over the people. He would speak a message of destruction, but also of hope. He'd speak a message of, of God's justice that was going to come through the Babylonians, but also God's compassion to restore the people of God and to bring them back into the land. And he has a long ministry. He ends up being over, uh, like, you know, preaching and speaking through five different kings of Judah, the last five kings of Judah before they fall into exile. But eventually we see it come to fruition. We see in the history uh, of Jeremiah and in the book that, that he goes to Jerusalem from Anathoth and he's, he's saying Babylon's going to come from the north and they're going to lay siege to Jerusalem. And it's what they do. Now, if you can picture this, Jerusalem was, was up on a plateau, up on sort of this flat hill. So it's an elevated position. So if you understand military history, you know, they're like, this is a good place to be, high, elevated, flat. They build this huge wall around the city, big enough that you could build small homes in it. Oftentimes, the poor of the, of the city of Jerusalem would build a home into the wall because it was the only place that they could afford. And so they, they think they're in this place of confidence. They're the people of God. They're doing the ritualistic things. They're on a hill. They've got this wall around them. They're going to be fine. And Jeremiah says, it's not the Babylonians you need to be concerned about. You are no match for what God is going to do here through the Babylonians. He says, you, you can have all these protections you want, but, but God is the one who's going to, to bring this justice towards your infidelity. No, no making of alliances is going to help you. No worship of idols is going to help you. God is going to do this. And I want to pause just for one little side thing here to say that it should cause us to have a little bit of reverence towards God, to understand that, that all things happen within his control, even things like Babylon laying siege to Jerusalem. And I know it's a weird thing for us to think that he, might, that he might allow something like that to happen, but it's also a comforting thing to think that he is in control of everything that we go through. And ultimately, I think what Paul would say is that it's for God's glory, it's for his good that he's doing, but it's for our good as well. Somehow, even through our confusing, trying times, we see that God is in control, and it's for our good and for his glory and his kingdom somehow. And so this is what happens. 600 years before the birth of Christ, Babylon lays siege to Jerusalem. They, they build it. You can actually find these things. There's still pictures of these where they build these huge like earthen ramps up the wall into Jerusalem and into cities that they conquer so they can come over the top so they can break into the wall. And you can still find these things around the world. And so Jerusalem is now surrounded by this, this foreign army. There's no food coming in. The fields have been burned and torched. There's no shepherds out there. There's no food coming in. You know, the, the, the water is becoming dirty and contaminated. Disease is starting to rise up. The people are suffering and dying from starvation. And it's this incredibly bleak situation that Jeremiah is called into to preach repentance, to call them back to God. And these people are looking for hope of how to get out of this situation. Now, I don't know where you find yourself this, this season of Advent. I don't know if life is going fine for you. 
and, and you don't feel like you have any concerns at all, or maybe you are coming through an incredibly trying time. Maybe the, the Babylonians aren't laying siege to your life per se. But I think a lot of us, what we find when we really get introspective and think about things is that things that we put our hope in and, and believe are strong, oftentimes we find out really aren't. Uh, you know, we, we look to things to be strong, we find that they prove to be weak. Things like our family life, our kids, our job, our financial security, our retirement plan, um, our accomplishments, our marriages, our friendships. Maybe you're in school, it's, you look to your grades or to your classmates, and we find out that they oftentimes aren't as strong as we think they are, and they aren't able to protect us from kind of the siege of life. But what we see in Jeremiah is that even in the midst of betrayal by family and friends that we hear about, the midst of crumbling defenses in the city of Jerusalem, the midst of oncoming guaranteed God-authored defeat, that, that we can still go on with our lives and we can have peace knowing that God is in control and we can put our hope in a God that restores, in a God that brings us through trials like this to bring us restoration. We can believe that full life is found in drawing close to God. And what I would say, investing in his kingdom, and I don't mean necessarily money, I just mean believing in his kingdom and living for it and finding that full life is found there. Jeremiah helps us lift up our eyes and see beyond the temporal things that we're going through. Not that they're not painful, not that they're not hard or difficult, but to look beyond them and beyond these temporary things into eternity to see that God ultimately restores God ultimately redeems things that are broken, including people and the earth. That God is a source of hope when we put our faith in him. Now, Jeremiah's ministry uh, was by no means a fun ministry. Like, I feel like my ministry is pretty fun. I get to, like, proclaim simply Jesus. A lot of you, like, I know personally, like, we're friends at this point. Like, this is good. This is Jeremiah did not have this luxury. Like, he had to leave his home and go to Jerusalem and say, you're all in trouble. Like, this is bad. This is really bad. And, and he has to proclaim to them that there is certain doom coming for your king. There's certain doom coming for your priests, for your false prophets. It's coming for you. And guess what? It's your fault. Like, that's, a, that's not a fun message to have to deliver. But this is what God calls him to, to go and bring about this cleansing for the people and the city that God is going to bring through justice and through the Babylonians. Now, Beyond preaching a message of, of doom and gloom that was no fun, like I said, the people actually turn and they hate him for it. They don't want to hear this. They don't want to be told that they're responsible for this. And, and eventually, at one point, people from his hometown, I guess they were living in Jerusalem at this point, they come and they're like, we're going to kill you. Like, you, you shouldn't be speaking this way. Cut it out. And, and, and we're going to kill you if you keep speaking like this. And, and God says, keep preaching. Keep preaching, Jeremiah. And he survives this this plot against his life because God is his defender. Um, God then calls him to go. So he's in Jerusalem. God then calls him to go and stand right outside the temple. I mean, this is the center of political and, and religious and national life for the Israelites, for the children of God. And he, God calls Jeremiah to go and stand outside of it and take this clay pot that he has made and smash it on the ground and say, this is what's going to happen to you in your temple. This is what's going to happen to your country. Well, one of the, the officials there in the temple hears this, grabs him, beats him, and puts him in stocks, you know, where they lock him in these stocks overnight in the courtyard. 
And he comes out the next day, he's released, and he goes right back to that, that courtyard official and he says, Babylon's coming for you. You're going to be carted off. Like, this is not a pretty fun, you know, ministry for him. Another time, God tells Jeremiah to take a yoke, like you know, on, a, on, a, on an ox to plow a field. Take this, this yoke of wood and probably leather straps and put it on your shoulder and put it on your arms and, to, and on your back and tell the people, this is what's going to happen when Babylon comes for you. You're going to be put under their authority. And this other false prophet comes and says, no, 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 that's never going to happen. And he takes the yoke and he smashes it on the ground and he says, you're wrong. In two years, Babylon's going to crumble. They're going to be broken like that yoke. And, and uh, Jeremiah's like, well, I guess you'll be proven right if that happens, but you're not going to be. You're going to be carted off as well. Actually, no, I think he says he's going to die. Yeah, that's right. He tells him he's going to die. He says, you're going to die. And then within that year, this guy dies. So like, again, not a pretty fun ministry that Jeremiah is called to. He's called by God. He's betrayed by family and friends. He's threatened with his life. He's persecuted and beaten, thrown in stocks. At one point later in the book, he gets thrown into a cistern in the ground where he's sinking in the mud for days until someone comes and pulls him out. I mean, not to mention, God tells him in chapter 16, you're not allowed to marry. You're not allowed to have children. You're not allowed to go to funerals because we don't want any, any kind of celebration of the goodness of life happening. You can't have kids because they would just die of disease, Jeremiah. You can't get married because there's going to be no celebrating of marriages anymore. There's no parties. There's no joy. There's no sounds of gladness in the street. It's only depression and death. No brides and grooms. Not, nothing. It's just sadness. He even tells Jeremiah there's no more animals out on the hills. There's no more shepherds to watch sheep. They're all off fighting somewhere. Or they've been holed up inside of Jerusalem. Like the fields are decimated. There's no more animals. I mean, it's just straight depressing. People have already been carted off. The earlier king has been carted off to Babylon. Jerusalem is under siege. Jeremiah is being persecuted and he's speaking these prophecies of doom. There's false prophets telling people, no, 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 you can have hope, believe in peace. Everything's going to be fine. So it's this confusing time, this crazy political climate, and it's just hopeless. So it's, it's into that culture that Jeremiah writes a letter that he sends off to the people who've already been exiled in Babylon. Okay, so Jerusalem is under siege. There's already some people who have been carted off to Babylon, Daniel and the earlier king, like I said. And in Jeremiah 29, a lot of you are going to recognize part of this because it's a pretty famous verse. Jeremiah pens this letter and sends it to the people in Babylon. And I just want to read something here to kind of help set up where we're going today. In 29 verse 4, it says this. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried away into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Listen to what he tells these exiles. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. He's saying, don't do that in Jerusalem, the city of God. Go do that in Babylon where you are in exile. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Uh, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for that city, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you're encouraging them to have, those fake things. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. Now, here comes this famous verse that you've probably seen in like Hobby Lobby, and you might even have hanging in your house, right? It says, this is what the Lord says. 
When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from the... uh, from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I have carried you into exile. You understand that, that, like, that famous verse from Jeremiah about plans to prosper you, plans not to harm you, plans to make you... Like, that's written to people who are living, going to be living for 70 years in foreign exile. And God's saying, I am a God who restores, and I will restore you when the covenant is fulfilled. But while you're in exile, while you're going through these things, seek the prosperity of where you are. Be there. Put roots down there. Marry there. Grow things there. Farm there. Do these things that bring joy for you and even for the people who've brought you into exile. I say that to set up the next part. From there, Jeremiah is caught by the king and imprisoned in the courtyard. So he's kept in the courtyard of the palace, probably so the king can keep an eye on him. Because what the king says to him is, why are you saying all these things? Why are you going out and prophesying doom to the troops? Like, this is discouraging for everyone. Would you just shut it? And if I can't get you to, at least I'll keep you here within my reach where you can't get away and say these things. And so Jeremiah is locked up in this this courtyard. He's imprisoned there. And in chapter 32, something really bizarre happens. God comes to Jeremiah and says, Uh, or God speaks to Jeremiah and says, your cousin is going to come from Anathoth, from your hometown. He's going to come to you in the courtyard, and he's going to ask you to buy some of your family land back. You're imprisoned. Babylon's laying like siege to your city. Your cousin's going to come and ask you to buy his land. And sure enough, this this cousin shows up named Hanamel, and he comes and he tells uh, Jeremiah, I want you to buy land from me. Now, I don't know if it was because he was starving and he needed money to buy food, so he's going to sell him the property. I don't know if he owed a debt to someone, but the, the Jewish law and what God wanted for the, for the people in the promised land was to maintain family ownership of land. So when this cousin comes to him and says, would you buy it? He says, it's your right to redeem it. We want it to stay in the family. You need to buy it. And Jeremiah says, I'll buy it. And so we see that Jeremiah uh, gets two titles signed. He puts copies in these clay pots, and he, and he seals them up, probably for safekeeping. Like This was like their deposit box. He's going to seal them up for years to come because he wants to do this and, and make it legal so that everyone knows about it. He does it in front of the sight of all these people. So here's this guy saying, Babylon's going to come. It's going to destroy your city, destroy your temple, cart you off. I'm going to buy some property now. Like It doesn't make any sense. This is a completely bizarre thing. So look, Jess and I, uh, my wife, have bought a couple different houses at this point, and we've lived in like nine or ten different places here and around the world. And I can tell you, and you know this, if you have any experience in buying homes, that location and timing really matter. Like it really matters. Our first house was a foreclosure that we bought on an acre and a half that backed up to preserved farmland on a dead-end street, and we sold in 2007. All right, so location, timing, it was awesome. God blessed us through that home. Now, the flip side of that was we sold that house so we could move overseas for a year to live in Jordan to do some mission work. And the house that we lived in in Jordan had terrible location. We, we were right across the street from a military base. 
So every day I'd get up and there was a guard standing there with some kind of assault rifle, like, which was very disconcerting. Like when you get up in the morning, there's a dude just standing across the street with a gun. I guess it became comforting after a little while. But there's an ugly military base across the street. And down the street from us, about two blocks away, was a mosque. Whatever, they're all over the Middle East. Like, you get used to this. Our mosque was pink. Like, I, like I mean that. It was painted pink with a green roof. It was hideous looking. And five times a day, the call to prayer would go off, sometimes in the middle of the night, and wake you up. The location was terrible. It was a terrible place to have a home. Luckily, we didn't own it. We just rented it and were able to turn it back over when we left. But all that to say, timing and location matter. And here we find Jeremiah buying land in the midst of a 70-year exile out in a, a village northeast of Jerusalem that's been decimated. Like, it doesn't make any sense that this would happen. So why is God doing this? Why is God having Jeremiah buy land? Why is he telling the, Babel, or the people who have been exiled to Babylon, why is he telling them to put down roots there? Why is he telling them to marry there but not in Jerusalem? I think the answer is one and the same, that, that God is a God of restoration and that he will, in fact, return the exiles and will restore the land someday, that someday marriages will happen again, There will be joy and celebration again. That land will have worth because it's going to be farmed again. And there will be animals there who will be shepherded. There will be shepherds out in the hills watching their sheep someday. But in the meantime, the people are not to draw back. They're not to isolate themselves and say, yeah, we're not going to do any of that stuff. We hate Babylon. We're not going to invest here. God's saying, no, 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 don't draw back. Don't isolate yourselves. I'm actually calling you to prosper there. I'm calling you to model for the Babylonians what it looks like to follow God, even as exiles. What it looks like to to invest there. What it looks like to bless the land that you're in. To pray for the city. Ultimately, I would say, to live as a light in the darkness, even in Babylon. Friends, can I just say that we are called to this as Christ followers, that while we are in exile, we are called to be a light to the world around us, that we are not called to just hunker down and isolate ourselves. We are called to pray for the city we live in, to bless the city we live in, to use our gifts and our talents and our abilities to bless Nazareth and the Lehigh Valley, to make Jesus known. We are not called to just stay in our own little holy huddle. The Israelites, the people from Judah, the people of God are called to believe that someday God will redeem the mess that they're in. And he will redeem this mess that we're in by renewing the covenant and bringing his kingdom to earth as it is in heaven. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to pray that way, that they are to model the kingdom of heaven on earth for the world around them. So how in the world will these people from Judah do this? How can they and how can we put our hope in a restoring God, a redeeming, the redeeming power of God, particularly particularly if we know that not only is the world around us evil and the world around us uh, sinful, we know that evil is in us. We've talked about this before, too, that, that the sin is oftentimes found mostly in us. How in the world can they put hope in this God knowing that they're surrounded in this way and ultimately that it's in them as well? Well, If you study further in Scripture, further in Jeremiah, you see that the promise of restoration, the promise of God bringing hope to the people and and restoring things, and even the promise of a return to the land is always closely and directly linked to the renewal of the covenant. 
that God had made with the people and that the people had made with God. That when the covenant would be fulfilled, when the people would uphold their side, that that God would bring them into the land. He says, you will seek me and you will find me. When you seek me, I will be your God and you will be my people. I'm going to move you back into the land. And he has this compassion towards them. And he's saying, repent, turn to me. Turn to me and be linked to me. So how will this covenant be fulfilled? Well, Jeremiah 31 is a phenomenal prophetic passage where Jeremiah says, this external covenant, this thing you've always been trying to keep, this law that's outside of rituals and blood sacrifices, guess what? It's not going to be external anymore. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I'm going to make this, I'm going to internalize this for you so that it's something in your spirit that gets fulfilled. I'm going to put it inside of you so that you actually can keep the covenant. And instead of writing it down on stone tablets anymore. It's going to be written on your hearts, he says. So it's through this covenant renewal through the, that this restoration will come to be, that the people can return to the land and the goodness of God. Turn with me to Jeremiah 33. I'm going to read this last little piece here. Jeremiah is... is it says, uh, verse 31, or 33, verse 1. It says, Jeremiah was still confined in the courtyard of the guard. So he's received this first word to buy property. Now he's receiving this second word. This is what the Lord says. He who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and tell you great and unsearchable things you do not know. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says about the houses in this city and the royal palaces of Judah that have been torn down to be used against the siege ramps and the sword in the fight with the Babylonians. So he's saying, like, you've already torn your houses down to try to protect yourselves and fortify the wall. This is what he says to them. Those houses will be filled with the dead bodies of the men I will slay in my anger and wrath. I will hide my face from this city because of all its wickedness. So you hear God's justice coming to bear. He goes on. Nevertheless, I will bring health and healing to it. I will heal my people and will let them enjoy abundant peace and security. I will bring Judah and Israel back from captivity and will rebuild them as they were before. I will cleanse them from all the sin they have committed against me and will forgive all their sins of rebellion against me. Then this city will bring me renown, joy, praise, and honor before all nations on earth that hear of all the good things I do for it. And they will be in awe and will tremble at the abundant prosperity and peace I provide for it. This is what the Lord says. You say about this place, it's a desolate waste without men or animals. Yet, in the towns of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are deserted, inhabited by neither men nor animals, there will be heard once more the sounds of joy and gladness, the voices of bride and bridegroom. And the voices of those who bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord, saying, Give thanks to the Lord Almighty, for the Lord is good. His love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as they were before, says the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In this place, desolate and without men or animals, in all its towns, there will again be pastures for shepherds to rest their flocks. In the towns of the hill country, of the western foothills and of the Negev, in the territory of Benjamin, in the villages around Jerusalem, and in the towns of Judah, flocks will again pass under the hand of the one who counts them, says the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the gracious promise I made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. 
Now listen to this prophecy. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by, this is the name by which it or he will be called, the Lord our righteousness. For this is what the Lord says, David will never fail to have a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, nor will the priests who are Levites ever fail to have a man to stand before me continually to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to present sacrifices. Now, there's a lot going on in there that I just read. I would encourage you this week, like check out Jeremiah 31 to 33 and just read some of the things that he's, he's prophetically speaking there. But I want you to catch a couple different images that are coming to fruition that, that God says will happen when the, when the covenant is, is renewed and the people have this covenant written on their hearts. In verse 11, there's a couple different things. He says, there will be tidings of joy and gladness in the streets again. People will be proclaiming joy about what God is doing again in the city of Jerusalem and in the towns around it. There'll be joy again. He says, brides and grooms will again be married. He says, there's going to be these celebrations because husband and wife are coming together and making a family and and people are going to celebrate this and there will again be new life coming to Jerusalem and to Judah. He says, people will come to where God dwells and bring thank offerings. People will come back to God and they will thank him and praise his love and his provision for them. They will bring gifts for God. And then in verse 12, he says, there will be shepherds again out in the fields, shepherds watching their flocks, counting them, keeping an eye on them. And if you look towards the end of that little passage there in verse 17, when will this happen? When will this restoration of marriages and joy and sheep out in the field, when will this happen? It will happen when God restores the kingdom under a permanent priest, under a permanent king from the line of David, a a priest who always stands before him making sacrifices, a branch that will sprout up from the line of David, called the Lord our righteousness. He will fulfill the covenant in all its fullness, and then this restoration will come to the people of God. I just want to read, just listen to this with me. You don't have to read it. I want to read this story from Luke 2. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was, he was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. You hear this marriage happening the birth of a new boy who would be called the son of righteousness. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And the shepherds run from this place, and they run into Bethlehem, proclaiming joy in the streets again, that the Messiah 
has come, that God is providing salvation for Israel. Friends, the king from the line of David that is forever on the throne is Jesus. He comes and restores the covenant and, and, and restores the people. As the author of Hebrews says, he is a priest now and forever. That we don't need to keep going and making offerings to, through a priest to God anymore. That Jesus' blood is always before God and saying, they are righteous because they're with me. He is the priest forever, always interceding and on our behalf. And by his spirit, the covenant is written on our hearts. Jeremiah 31, come to fruition. Jesus is the fulfillment who fulfills the covenant and brings about new marriages, this life that comes to Joseph and Mary, this new baby boy that's born, this, the sheep back on the hills. And the sheep, like it is the fulfillment of Jeremiah 31 at Christmas time. Now, when our lives are under siege, or the world around us seems so broken and we still feel that that sting of exile, that the kingdom is here but not yet in its fullness. Do we draw back and isolate ourselves and say, I'm just going to hunker down? By no means. We live as lights in the darkness, keeping hope in our restoring God, who 600 years after this prophecy of Jeremiah put everything in the fullness of time together to bring about the king from David, the priest forever called Jesus. The same writer to the Hebrews says that, that what Jesus has done and through him, because of what he's done, we can draw near to God that we can be close to God and have a relationship with him, that we can have our consciences cleaned. Do you understand the freedom of that, that we can mentally say, I'm done with this. I have a clean conscience because Jesus testifies on my behalf as a righteous one. We can spur one another on to love and good deeds, and that the land that the children of Israel, that they so longed for, has now become full life for us. That we are new creation, Paul says. And that through Jesus' death and resurrection, new creation has begun on earth. And we can celebrate with joy that the kingdom is starting to come to bear. One family at a time, one workplace at a time, one home at a time. That the kingdom can come to bear in, in our schools, one locker at a time, one classroom at a time, one town at a time, one valley at a time. And that even in our pain, even in the siege, even in the imprisonment that we find ourselves in figuratively, that we can see that it has purpose. That God will restore on the other side of it. That he will redeem and make all things right someday when he comes in his kingdom in its fullness. But while we live in the exile of this world, we know that we can look forward to an unshakable kingdom that we inherit with Jesus. That someday that the pain and the struggle of this world will be put down and we will live in a new heaven and a new earth. My church experience when I was little and what I read made me think that heaven was some place where we get to float around with harps and it's like fluffy clouds and singing all the time. And I was like, I don't know if I want that forever. Honestly, like it sounds kind of weird, right? But I think what God is saying is, I'm going to restore this earth. I'm going to make it beautiful again. And it's going to be glorious. And it's going to be fun. And there's going to be streams to swim in and mountains to climb and animals to play. Like, it's going to be wonderful. So we live in this temporary exile now, looking forward to the day when God comes and restores earth in that way. That is the new heaven and the new earth that we get to look forward to. So even in our pain now, we get to look forward to that and say, praise God that that's coming. Praise God that we get to look forward to that. And in the meantime, we get to draw near to God with a clean conscience and have a relationship with him because of Jesus. So we invest now 
and we live life now like exiles in Babylon, praying for the city that we live in, building a life for ourselves here to the glory of God, believing that someday it will be permanently restored, permanently redeemed by, by the power of the Red Sea parting, promised land, conquering, exile returning, covenant-fulfilling God through Jesus. Like, this is what we look forward to. Friends, we don't come to Christmas just to see a baby in a manger. We come to see a king, a king who says, I will restore and redeem all of this. And ultimately, I can do that because I was dead and I'm alive again. And I have the power of God to open the scroll, to move forward with God's kingdom, and to plant it fully on earth as it is in heaven. This is the hope that we have at Christmas as people living in exile, looking forward to the return and the restoration of God. My prayer is that we would live this reality this Christmas in our own way, maybe understanding God's care for us in a new way, drawing near to him with a clean conscience, maybe boldly inviting people into the hope of the kingdom. This is the life that we get to live because of the gospel, because of Jesus come to earth, the fulfillment of Jeremiah 33 on earth. Would you pray with me? Father, we confess that we can't bring about restoration. That it's not within our power to make ourselves righteous. It's not within our power to fulfill the covenant. And we repent of the alliances we make with with idols, with things we look to for our security. We ask that you would be our security, that you would be our strength, that you would be our hope of restoration. God, thank you for sending Jesus in the fullness of time to be our restoration, to fulfill the covenant on our behalf, making us righteous so that we can move into the promised land of full life now and in eternity. Would you help us by your spirit to grasp a little bit more of that this Christmas season? That we wouldn't just get caught up in in, in, in family drama or in presence or whatever it is, though those things, some of those things can be good, would you help us know you more and understand you more as the one who restores, the one we can put our hope in? In Jesus' name, amen.